Great to see you today. Of course, we will be in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 10 again. The Gospel of Mark in chapter 10. We are kind of working our way through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this is our, actually, this is sermon number 42 on the Gospel of Mark as we are working our way through. We've got a number, many more weeks to go yet, uh, but we'll be in Mark 10 again today. I must, uh, I must admit that I am way behind the curve when it comes to what we call pop culture, uh, popular culture, popular in our society, uh, new styles of clothing, the latest thing in fashion, the newest thing in music, trendy phrases, uh, idioms that are, uh, that are peculiar to younger generations and so forth. It's, it's, it's pop culture, as we call it, and I'm way behind the curve. Recently, we, we saw a teenaged meme uh, that read, uh, No cap, this drip bussin' FRFR, which, of course, we had no idea about. Uh, in this meme, uh, there was a response from an older gentleman that was, uh, and a random string of nonsense to you as well, sir. But, uh, which is kind of what we thought as well, a random string of nonsense. No cap this drip bussin' FRFR. However, our, our uh, teenaged granddaughter translated for us. She said, oh, that means no joke, your outfit is on point for real. I said, okay. Sounds good to me, I guess. So I, I, I am certainly way behind the curve on all of that stuff. But one, one newer idiom that has become relatively common in the last several years that I am familiar with is the acronym used to describe someone, usually in the sporting world, who is absolutely amazing and successful and their stats are better than practically anyone else. You probably know the phrase, the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Uh, the first known use of the term GOAT in this sense was in September of 1992, believe it or not, way back, way back in 92, when uh, Muhammad Ali's wife, Lonnie, formed a, formed a company to promote Muhammad Ali's legacy and to raise money for Parkinson's disease research, and she called her company the greatest of all time incorporated in reference to her husband. But it wasn't until 15, 20 years ago that it became into common use, usually in the sporting world, uh, but now it's used everywhere. You know, some people say Michael Jordan is the basketball goat. Others argue that it's LeBron James. Some say Serena Williams is the tennis goat. 23 Grand Slam singles titles, etc. In football, many people consider Tom Brady to be the goat, while others argue for somebody else. Uh, Amazon has been called the goat of internet business. And, and on and on and on it goes. It's, and it's, 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 it's quite a thing for pop culture to start calling you the goat. But in a very real sense, in a biblical sense, in the truest sense of the word, the only true goat that has ever walked planet Earth is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't mean to be trendy or sacrilegious or vain or disrespectful in any way when I say that, but we, we are all rebellious sinners who deserve the wrath of God and eternal punishment, and Jesus Christ, as we saw last Sunday, he willingly, voluntarily, intentionally walked 
purposely toward his death on the cross, and he did it for you and for me. Jesus knew the exact circumstances of his death. He knew exactly what they were going to do to him. That's what makes his determined, courageous walk up to Jerusalem even more amazing. He was doing all of that for us. It is as though Jesus said, I have an appointment with a torturous death, man, and in order for you to be forgiven and spend eternity with me, it must be done. I cannot be late for this appointment, so let's get going. And they marched toward Jerusalem. As we said last week, Jesus was not an unwilling victim. He willingly laid down his life for sinners like you and me. As Jesus very plainly said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I will take it back. And there is, of course, no greater expression of the love of God. Jesus is the greatest of all time, and there is no one else who even begins to come close or ever will. And as the scripture tells us in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But in our fallen humanity, we all have this, this inner desire to be somebody. Most folks usually try to hide it a little bit so people don't think they're stuck on themselves. But we all want to be successful. We all want to be accepted. We all love to be recognized. And if we don't battle against it, those desires tend to come out in ugly ways. If you grew up in a conservative Christian home, as I did, you had parents who tried to discipline some of those things out of you. We heard things all of our lives like, don't be stuck on yourself, don't strive to be recognized, do your duty as a follower of Jesus, don't expect constant pats on the back, die to self, live for God, the world doesn't revolve around you. We heard all those sorts of things during our formative growing up years. One thing my dad said to me, I, could, I can't tell you how many times my dad said this to me. Don't live your life focused on your feelings, Larry. Live your life focused on your responsibilities. He probably told me that hundreds of times. Hopefully it worked. But, but down deep, every one of us, well, all, we all love the praise of people. We all want to be accepted for what we think we've done. We love to think that in a certain job or a certain task or a certain talent, we'd, we love to think that we are the goat. Jesus actually addresses that issue in our passage today. I've titled our thoughts for today, The Path to Greatness. There are two paths to greatness, the world's path and God's path. And we see both of them very clearly in this passage of Scripture. So let's read this morning, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. Mark 10, verses 35 to 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. 
So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. We see in this passage, of course, two things that are well known to all of us. One is probably more often experienced than the other, but we see pride and we see humility. And if you've spent much time in the scripture, you know that God hates pride and he honors humility. That truth is literally all over the place on the pages of scripture. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogance, and the evil way and the perverse mouth do I hate. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 21.4 says, A haughty look and a proud heart are sin. In Romans 1, when the Apostle Paul is describing the mind that is filled with unrighteousness, he puts pride and boasting right in the middle of the list. 1 John 2.16, the Apostle John wrote, Pride is a characteristic of worldliness. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 1 John 2.16. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Pride, you know, Paul wrote, is a mark of false teachers. James chapter 4 and verse 6 says, Pride drives a wedge between us and God because God resists the proud. On the other hand, that same verse, James 4.6, says God not only resists the proud, says he gives grace to the humble. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, it says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Psalm 138.6 says, Though the Lord is high, yet he has respect to the humble. Psalm 10.17 says, The Lord hears the desire of the humble. Proverbs 15.33 says, Before honor is humility. Just a sampling of a few verses. As I say, it's all over the pages of Scripture. God hates pride and He loves the humble heart. In the, the New Testament, we are told to put on humility and to be clothed with humility and to walk in humility and to humble ourselves because the root of our sin nature is pride. See, all of our other sins feed off of pride. All temptations of any kind and every kind are all based on self-gratification. You ever think about that? All of our temptations are based on self-gratification, doing what I want to do for me. And of course, the reason why a temptation is a temptation is because we want to do it. It, it appeals to our personal fulfillment and our personal satisfaction and our personal d desires. And therefore, we think that gives us the right to do what we want, which is an expression of our pride and our self-love. You ever really thought about that, that the reason a temptation is a, is, is a temptation is because we want to do it? If you didn't want to do it, it wouldn't be a temptation. 
You remember I've preached to you hundreds of times over the years. You can't change your life until you change your choices. And you won't change your choices until you change your thinking. And by your thinking, I mean your values, your priorities, your desires, what's going on in your inner man, what's going on in your mind. You can't change your life until you change your choices, and you won't change your choices until you change your thinking. So if you want to have victory over temptation, then you have to change your values, and you have to change your priorities, you have to change your desires. If you no longer want to do it, then it ceases to be a temptation. It sounds so simple, but it is so incredibly tough. You just have to change your values and your priorities and your desires, and the temptations that used to afflict you won't be temptations anymore. Because temptation appeals to our desire for personal fulfillment and personal satisfaction and personal desires. And so then we tell ourselves that we have the right to do what we want, which is simply, as I said, an expression of our pride and our love of ourselves. In the list of sins that Proverbs 6 gives us, it says there are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him in Proverbs 6. First on the list is a proud look. You see, pride is the underlying sin that leads to all of our other sins. Yet in this sinful, fallen world, human beings are always seeking their own satisfaction, their own fulfillment, and human beings, even the Lord's people, regularly struggle with wanting to promote themselves. That's why our Lord is having a very difficult time getting this lesson across to His apostles that we just read about. Jesus has already addressed this issue with them just a, just a, just a few verses back. In fact, look at, turn back a page to chapter 9 and look at verse 33. This is just a few weeks before. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus has already talked about this issue. Hey, what are you guys arguing about on the road as we were walking? Oh, we were just... Because Jesus knew what they were arguing about. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Well, be, no, it's not going to be you. It's going to be me. And I, I, they're, they're having this big debate over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And so here we come back here again to, to, to chapter 10, just a few weeks down the road, and they do the very same thing again. And see, remember now, these guys love Jesus. They love the truth. They have believed on Him. They believe in His coming kingdom. They are saved. They have been born again. The Holy Spirit is with them, not in them yet. He'll be, he'll be, he's, he's with them. Holy Spirit won't be in them until after the resurrection, but He's with them. And they are still struggling with pride in a major way. And at this point, they're losing. They are struggling with their own personal desires to be the goat in the kingdom. Remember, these guys are, they are common men. They are average working class guys. They are not rich and famous. They are not celebrities. They are not politically powerful. They are just average working class guys. And the thought that they could be elevated for the first time in their lives, I just think it's a very, very appealing thing. 
They worked hard all their lives. They've been at the lower end of society. Jesus has called them to be his disciples. They have come to know who he is. They, they realize he is the promised Messiah that they've been waiting for for centuries. They are in his inner circle, and it's like, wow, look what we have become. Look at this incredible opportunity. Jesus has said that we will rule and reign over the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah, baby, this is going to be great. Peter, James, and John were on the mountain with Jesus when he was transfigured, and they saw a glimpse of his coming glory. So all the disciples, they are, they are beginning to understand the reality of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, but instead of it developing humility in them, it fed their pride and their desire for self-fulfillment. They want glory. They want elevation. They want exaltation. They want fulfillment. They want satisfaction. They are headed for Jerusalem during the Passover season, and something big is going to happen. They can just sense it. Well, something big is going to happen, all right, but not what they're expecting. So James and John, they come to Jesus with this request that for, for, from our vantage point, 2,000 years later, seems a very brash and bold and out of line. But remember, they're all pumped up for the kingdom. We're going to rule and reign over the 12 tribes. So, hey, let's get to Jesus before the other guys do. There are 12 of us here. We don't want to end up at the back of the line. The early bird gets the worm, as grandma used to say. Or as business people say, you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. As modern day business people say, so let's go ask Jesus before the other apostles think of this. That's where we are in the story. So let's describe now the, these two paths to greatness. I've already told you that the first path is the world's path, the second path is God's path. But let's expand on that by, by saying this, the world's path is the path of self-promotion. The world's path is the path of self-promotion. God's path is the path of self-denial. Self-denial. So let's unpack that a little bit. What, 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 are, the, what are the features of self-promotion? We see them here in the text. What, what are the motivations of self-promotion? The first one is this. Selfish ambition. It's all about me and what I'm hoping in, for in, in my future. That's where James and John are at the moment. They are focused on themselves. I mean, it's really quite a brash, bold statement. Lord Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Well, I think, whoa, you're asking the Son of God. Just Lord, just do whatever I tell you to do, will you? Wow. And remember, this is right on the heels of Jesus telling them that he is going to Jerusalem to be mocked and scourged and spit on and killed. And quite possibly, just a few hours later, just a few hours after Jesus says this, James and John come up to him with this. Perhaps they're thinking that they're in the inner circle with Jesus, which they actually are. They were on the mountain with Jesus when they saw a glimpse of his glory. And so we're, apparently, we're, we're probably in here pretty thick with Jesus. He has given us special privileges, so maybe we'll just ask for more special privileges. We like this position on the, on, on, on the, on, on the inside track. So let's see if we can seal the deal now. Selfish ambition. The first motivation is self-promotion. The second one is this, entitlement. An attitude of, of entitlement. This is the idea that we are owed something. We, we deserve it. 
Now, Peter has just made a similar statement back in chapter 9. We studied that a few weeks ago. He says, we have left all and have followed you, Lord. So, so, so what's in this for us? We have laid it all on the line for you, Rabbi. So, so, so what do we get? And you know, it, it, it's very easy for followers of Jesus to start thinking that since we have tried so hard to be faithful, I mean, nobody's perfect, but I've tried so hard to be faithful, surely God should do something for me. Sometimes in our parenting, unfortunately, we have developed an attitude of entitlement in our children because we have provided so much for them and in some cases bailed them out of various things that we never let them go without. We never let them struggle with an issue or face a difficult issue without fixing it all for them. And they come to expect that no matter what happens, mom and dad or grandma and grandpa are always going to fix it for me and give me what I want because they always have. And we unfortunately kind of bring that into our walk with the Lord Jesus and we kind of get the notion that God should provide for us whatever we want Him to provide for us. And if He doesn't do for us what we think He should do for us, then we fall into despair because we have developed an inner sense of spiritual entitlement. The Mark doesn't record this, but Matthew does. If we read the parallel passage in Matthew, James and John when they come to Jesus with this, they brought their mother with them. And she asks Jesus to let her sons sit on his right hand and on his left in the kingdom. Now this is very important. When we first read it, I think, hey, wait a minute. Why, why would you bring your mother? Come on, man, you're grown up. You're a grown man in a business. Why would you bring your mother to ask Jesus a favor for you? That's what I think, Okay. Well, it's, it's not just that they brought their mother, it's who their mother was. You see, when you study the crucifixion of Christ in the account of Matthew and Mark and John, you see several women were at the cross. Not all of them are named, but several women were at the cross there just weeping and praying and, and there with Jesus while he died. And of those who are named, you see Mary, the mother of Jesus. You see Mary Magdalene. And you see another woman who is named. This other woman at the cross is identified three different ways. Matthew calls her the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So here she is right here. This is her. It's, it, it's this woman. Which means, of course, that, that, that the, the, the mother of James and John, she hung in there with Jesus right to the very end. All the way to the cross. When all the disciples except John fled the scene, she hung in there. She was at the cross, showing tremendous commitment. That's who Matthew calls her, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Mark calls her, we'll get to it in a couple of chapters, Salome. He calls her by name. Salome. John calls her, and this is the key, John calls her the sister of Jesus' mother. So Salome, the mother of James and John, is Jesus' aunt from the human perspective. So James and John are kind of, they're kind of playing the family card here. Not only were we with you, Lord, at your transfiguration, not only are we with you in your inner circle, but hey, your mother is our mother's sister, your Auntie Salome. That's got to be good for something. We're your cousins, bro. Surely we're entitled to something better than these guys are going to get. Entitlement. Number three, the third aspect of this, overconfidence. Overconfidence in their own abilities. 
Jesus is so patient, you know, I mean, he is so, he is so patient with them, he is so patient with us. We are such a bunch of rascally sinners so many times. Jesus is so patient with us, just like he was with them. Jesus does not blast them and tell them, oh, grow up and shape up, will you? He just asks, oh, you want that position next to me in the kingdom? Okay, can, can you go through what I'm about to go through? That's what he means. Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Can you go through the baptism I'm about to be baptized with? What I'm going to be immersed in you? Can you handle what I'm about to handle? Can you face what I have to face? Oh, yes, Lord. We can handle it. They have no idea what they're talking about. It's probably a good thing. Jesus said to them, verse 8, You do not know what you ask. You, you, don't, you, guys, you don't have a clue what I'm about to go through. So don't stand there and tell me, oh yes, you can drink the cup I'm going to drink. Yeah, right. Overconfidence. And you know, if, I'm, I'm, I'm glad Jesus didn't tell them. I'm glad Jesus didn't describe exactly what he was going to go through again. He's already told them he's going to be scourged and spit on and mocked and he's going to be killed. But, but he didn't tell them exactly what they were going to go through and exactly what he was going to go through. James, this, this uh, brother right here, he was the first apostle to die. Acts chapter 12, he was, he was beheaded by Herod in the prison. First, he's the first apostle to die. His, his younger brother John was the last apostle to die. They threw John in a cauldron of boiling oil and tried to kill him, and somehow he miraculously survived, so they banished him to a prison island for the rest of his life. That's where he was living when he wrote the book of Revelation. So Jesus says, can you drink the cup? Oh, you're going to drink the cup all right. But, but he didn't tell them exactly what it was going to be. And, and, and I thought, you know, that's, that's great because I, I, I honestly believe if God told us every detail of what he was going to call us to do in the next five years, it would probably scare us to death. Some people are terrified at what God might ask them to do. That's why they run from God. They have the Jonah complex. They're going to get on a boat and sail the other direction. I don't want to do what God is calling me to do. I'm real comfortable right here. Don't rock my boat, Jesus. Don't drag me out of my bubble. And lots of folks, they are just terrified of, of the will of God. There are other folks, that they're like James and John. Give me special privileges, Lord. I can handle whatever goes along with it. God says, are you sure? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The overconfident disciple replies, I can handle it. You know, Lord, you know it, Lord. I mean, I, I, I've got this covered, Lord. Just lay it on me. As long as I get my special privileges, I can handle it. As long as I get recognized and I'm respected, yes, I can drink the cup. Yeah, overconfidence. And then number four, the fourth path, the fourth aspect of self-promotion, competition. You see, it isn't just James and John. The other disciples get quite irritated with them. Verse, verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. They say, hey, wait, well, look at these guys. These guys, are try they're trying to cut in line. Who do they think they are? Cutting in line for special privileges. We're all apostles. Well, what about that? And you know, whenever we walk the path of self-promotion, our hearts will be directed by Selfish ambition and an attitude of entitlement and overconfidence in our own abilities and a spirit of competition. 
That's the path to self-promotion. That's where our hearts are taking us. But then we come to verse 42, thankfully. Thankfully, we come to verse 42. Jesus called them to himself. In other words, he says, gather around, gentlemen. It's class time again. Remember a few weeks ago, you were arguing about who'd be the greatest in the kingdom? And I told you that to be first in the kingdom, you need to be last of all and servant of all? Well, here we are again, guys. So gather around and listen to me. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, the path of self-promotion works in the world. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. The path of self-promotion is not your path. He says, it will not be so among you. The rulers of the Gentiles, oh, they like to lord it over everybody and exercise all their authority over everybody. They love to throw their weight around and make you realize how important they think they are. He said, it will not be so among you. Because the path to greatness in my kingdom is the path of self-denial. You will be servants and you will be slaves. That's your relationship to your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's your relationship to everyone around you. You will serve. Verse 45, in my view, this is my personal opinion, okay? Verse 45, in my view, is one of the greatest verses ever regarding the purpose of Jesus Christ's ministry and the model for our life in Christ. I love verse 45. If you're a Bible highlighter, underliner, please mark that verse. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. We are not here to be served. We are here to serve and to give our lives for others. You know the word ransom here, it's only used twice in the New Testament, here and in the parallel passage in Matthew. It means to loose or to set free. And it refers, this is a beautiful part of it, it, it the, the way that it's used in classical Greek as well as in New Testament Greek, it refers to the price paid to free a slave. Jesus gave his life as the price paid to release a slave, us. To whom was the ransom paid, you might ask? Well, to God the Father. God the Father is the judge who had to be satisfied. God's justice had to be satisfied. Jesus bore God's wrath towards sin and he paid the ransom. He paid the price to set us free. Jesus was our substitute. The, the one and only Son paid the ransom for many who were enslaved by their own sin. The path to honor in God's kingdom is through humble service, seeing yourself as a servant and as a slave. Our, our model is Jesus Christ. Our method is to serve. Our motive is self-denial. Our message is Christ's ransom paid to set us free. Which path of greatness are you walking? Let's pray.
Lord, we are surrounded by the world. We see it in the world all the time. The path of self-promotion, I mean, it's just everywhere. The path of pride is everywhere. We see it all over us. We see it everywhere we go. And yet, Lord, you very plainly toward you, told your disciples, it will not be so among you. This is not our path as followers of Jesus. Our path is the path of self-denial. Our path is the path of service and sacrifice and dedication to the cross of Christ and to the needs of others. Lord, I pray that you will help us to not have this sense of competition or entitlement or think we deserve something from you. Lord, may we realize if, and thank you that you don't give us what we deserve. Because if you did, we'd all be in, be in eternity in hell right now. But Lord, by your grace, you paid the ransom for us. You paid the price to set us free. And Father, we just ask you to help us to walk the path of self-denial. May you use each person here today in the kingdom of God in wonderful, mighty, powerful ways to touch many people's hearts for the cause of Christ. We ask you, Lord, to help us. In Jesus' name, amen.